Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. It's uh, Hanukkah. It's a festive time for everybody. I'm sure you're having a great time enjoying the Hanukkah spirit, lighting up the world as we do at this time of the year. And I suppose uh, Tabo will agree with me if it's Hanukkah and it's a little bit more of a festive time, we can make it a little bit more of a fun show. Maybe we'll stick in a little bit of music, which we don't normally do. I don't know what kind of Hanukkah tracks we have, but maybe we'll stick something in. It is fresh thinking, and it is a time of year where everybody is winding down. I'm sure you're winding down as well. But don't let that be a reason to wind down your Hanukkah experience. There's a few days left. We're just at the halfway mark now. That means that there are all kinds of things you could still inject into your Hanukkah experience and make it a lot of fun and make it meaningful. I really think that the most important thing is to make it meaningful. We had a lot of fun last night, actually, at our uh, center. We uh, had a very... Very nice Hanukkah experience, Hanukkah party. And we also did a Guinness World Record donut pile, <laughs> which is actually quite interesting. So it was great. It was, it was really nice. And I hope that you are having an equally exciting and, uh, but like I say, many meaningful Hanukkah. So let's talk about the meaning. I think there's certain things that get rehashed year on year. You know, people talk about the light and they talk about the minority overcoming the majority and right overriding might and that kind of thing somebody one of the kids came over to me last night at our Hanukkah party and they had a question and I'm going to share that question with you and hope that you've got some insight into it the question was why do we make such a big deal about the oil because of course the main way that we celebrate Hanukkah is by lighting the menorah and this young boy this young man wanted to know why don't we make a fuss about the battle about the success the victory of the Maccabees in the war, because ultimately, if you think about it, had they not succeeded in the war, then they would have, we would never have gotten to the point of lighting the menorah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Maybe you've got some thoughts or insights on that one. Why is it that we focus so much on the light rather than on the war? So I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can SMS on 34519. You can WhatsApp 0618951019. Or you could tweet as you like to. At Chai FM, you can tweet directly at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So, you know, once you start to analyze this story, the Hanukkah story, which comes around every year and everybody celebrates, it's arguably one of the most celebrated holidays, maybe even the most. The statistics vary a little bit between Yom Kippur and Hanukkah in terms of who participates more. But then I guess if you consider that Hanukkah is long, it's eight days, so maybe it outdoes even Yom Kippur. And at this time of the year, when everybody's involved and engaged and lighting menorahs and singing Hanukkah songs and playing with a dreidel and all the other wonderful things that we do, you have do have to ask yourself the question, how come is it that the war element, which clearly was miraculous, I mean, we say it in our prayers, we speak about the tremendous miracles, Rabim biyad mi'atim, the many in the hands of the few, Tameim biyad tohorim, those who were contaminated in the hands of those who had remained pristine and pure, 
Uh, the wicked in the hands of the righteous. So it's a very strong message. And it's interesting because very often you hear people talk about that when they try to explain to those who are not familiar with Hanukkah and try to say what the whole holiday is all about. You often hear people say that, that that's what the holiday is about. It's about that kind of a victory. And it's about the fact that the underdog managed to turn things on its head. And it's about... The possibility of standing up for what's right even against a tsunami of opposition. So how come it is then that that does not become the focus of the holiday? Yes, of course it is mentioned in the prayers. This was the, this young man asked me, doesn't be a young guy. I mean, he's not even Bamitsev yet and he asked me this question last night. And it was difficult, I suppose, to give him an answer standing on one foot, especially in the middle of a big event with hundreds of people and music and all kinds of chaos happening. But it's definitely food for thought. So I guess what we need to do and what we need to think about is what does military victory mean to us as Jewish people? And what does the concept of light and the purity of the oil that's used for that light mean to us as Jewish people? Because that that might well help us, right? That might well help us just to get a handle on what it is. So I'd love to hear your input and your thoughts as well. You can SMS 34519. You can WhatsApp 0618951019. Or you could tweet at Chai FM. You could tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Message here from Neil who says, oil fuels the light and Hashem fuels us to be the light to the world. So that's nice. That That is, that's a beautiful image. And I suppose when you consider that we use such expressions as being light unto the nations, or you think about how the first creation in the whole process of creation was light. And God said, let there be light, right? Everybody knows that that's the first statement of creation. So light is very, very powerful and very much a part of uh, what we're supposed to be doing in this world. So that's what Neil says here by WhatsApp, that oil fuels light and God fuels us to be the light to the world. And, and maybe that raises another question, by the way, because I think it's a beautiful image that you've mentioned of. Yes, it does raise a different question, and that is, don't you think that just automatically, as soon as you say that, that we are supposed to be the light to the world, does that not automatically imply that the world is not a place of light? Which is an interesting Discussion in its own right. How are we supposed to view the world? Are we supposed to view the world as being a dark place that needs to be illuminated? And if we don't do it, then the world is going to become darker and darker. Sometimes you listen to the news, maybe usually when you listen to the news. That's how it feels. It feels as if the world is just getting darker and darker. So, yes, you can definitely say that the symbol of light in the Hanukkah story is a symbol to us. It's a message to us. It's a call to action. And it's an insistence that we do something to make the world a brighter place. I just wonder if that is correct, that we're supposed to see the world as a dark place that needs us to brighten it. And I think it's one of those things that you could probably argue from different perspectives. But then again, uh, let's, let's be technical, I suppose, for a moment. Let's be technical. If our objective is primarily to light up the world, you do realize that the, the issue around the light in the Hanukkah story. So let's, let's just go back and review the Hanukkah story because sometimes we, you know how it is. You've heard the story so many times. When Hanukkah comes around again, you say, ah, I know the story. And then you don't necessarily pay attention to it. And we're all the same in this way. And we don't pay attention and we kind of, overlook what the uh, story really says we kind of miss some of the details and naturally if you miss some of the details you definitely miss the story so or the message of the story 
So it's all very well to say that the Hanukkah story is a story of light. I'm not sure that that is a fair treatment of the story because there was light. Let, let's, let's dial it back. So the story of Hanukkah is that there's a group of people who were Kohanim. They were the priests. They were the people who served in the temple. And what their job was on a daily basis was to run the various things that had to happen in the temple, much of which was built around sacrifices. But not only, there were various things that they had to do. One of the things was to light a candelabra, a golden candelabra called the menorah, on a daily basis. And in order to light that menorah, you had to have oil. So if you think about it, the imagery associated with a temple on any given day of the year, not only at the time of the Hanukkah story, was the image of generating light in the world. So that can't be the uniqueness of the Hanukkah story, right? Because that should be a general theme of the entire temple history. In fact, we're even told, the sages tell us, that the design of the temple was in such a way that the windows would allow the light from inside to shine outside. You know, usually what you want to do when you design a house or any building for that matter is to bring in as much external light into the building as possible. And here was this unusual design where the purpose was to get the light from within the building, which essentially was the light of the menorah, to generate out into the world. So that implies that light and illuminating the world was the overarching theme of the 800-plus years that the temple stood in Jerusalem. You know, sometimes you actually have to review that information. Let's just pause on that for one moment. Over 800 years that there was a Jewish temple that sat in the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. Just important to know that. In any event, so the the theme over there very clearly is a theme of, of light. So you can't say that the greatness of Hanukkah is that it's the message of light, even though it might be one of the messages, but that can't be the message because that would seem to be a message that predates the Hanukkah story. That would seem to be a message that is generalized to the whole temple experience and maybe even generalized beyond that to the whole Jewish experience. So there's no question about it. You you could take a message out of this that it is about generating light into the world. But let's let's unpack the story. What happened in the story? Let's also explore the way in which we observe Hanukkah because that will give us a clue as well. We don't just willy-nilly light candles or oil menorahs for Hanukkah. We actually do it in a very specific way at a very specific time, you know, and those things are quite relevant. So as I say, when you do something a lot, you become quite comfortable with it and then perhaps you forget to just pay attention. Hang on a second. What What are the details? What was the story really saying? What was the nature of the miracle? And by you know, once you know that, then you can start to establish what the nature is of the lesson. And the same thing with observance, the way that we observe Hanukkah. So I've identified that we observe by emphasizing the oil, the miracle of the oil and lighting a menorah even more than we emphasize the battle. But but let's explore that a little bit further because it's not just simply about light and it's not just simply about a menorah. It's quite a lot going on over here in this holiday. So I see the couple of messages coming through, which I'll get to in a moment. But before we do that, what we really need to do is just we need to look at the story and start the story again right from the beginning. So here's a group of people, and they are, so to speak, the custodians. They are the protectors of the temple. And the next thing, there's an assault, an assault from a foreign 
ideology that says, hang on a second, your temple, we, we don't like the way that it operates, and your theology, we don't like the way that that operates, and we're going to interfere. And, and let's explore from that perspective. I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Okay, so hold your horses on those messages. I mean, don't send in the messages, but uh, just have a little bit of patience. I'm going to come back to them in just a moment. Let's have a look at the story and just unpack it in all its detail. Well, not all its detail because that would take up all the time that we have over here. But a couple of things. First of all, Everybody jumps to the conclusion that there was a battle that went on and the battle was to reinstate control of the temple. Now, that is true because the the Jewish community had lost control of the temple, but that wasn't the only thing that the battle was over. And I think people often make the mistake and think that the battle was over Jewish survival as in the people. In other words, we're so used to the fact that over the course of our history, there have been so many different cultures kingdoms, empires, who've done everything in their power to literally get rid of us, thank God, unsuccessfully. So you just assume, well, here's another one, you know, just like the Babylonians try to get rid of us and the Egyptians and the Romans in their time. So the Greeks, same kind of thing. Now, uh, we could, I suppose, go into a whole discussion about whether it was really the Greeks, but let's suffice to call it Hellenists because that really represents the ideology, which is what this was all about. Nobody wanted to kill anybody, actually, uh, initially at least. You know how these things are. Things begin with good intentions and then they go awry. But initially, nobody had any intention to kill the Jewish people. What they wanted to do was to kill Jewish thought. They wanted to, to completely erase and eradicate the Jewish perspective on things, on life, on religion, on God, on purpose. So that's where the conflict lay. So that's the first thing that I think we have to clarify because people don't understand it. Now, needless to say, if it had been an assault on the Jewish nation, as in uh, some kind of a genocide, well, then obviously the celebration would be about the fact that we escaped that genocide and it would be about the fact that we managed to vanquish our enemies. So the minute you notice that we don't overemphasize the miracle of the military side of things, that automatically tells you a story. That tells you that the focus over here was not about that element of the scuffle, of that, that element of the, of the battle. It wasn't about trying to get rid of Jews. Okay, so thought just to consider. Next thing that's very interesting is that the battle or the miracle, let's call it that way, the miracle of Hanukkah was not the miracle of the fact that they were able to light the menorah. It's not even the miracle of the fact that they were able to find oil. Now, there's a subtlety that I think sometimes gets lost. They had plenty olive oil available. It was available right there in the temple. They could have pulled out any one of those jugs of oil because there were many, and they could have used any one of those jugs of oil to light the menorah, but they didn't. And the only reason that they didn't was because they wanted to find a jug of oil that still had the seal of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest. Now, the Kohen Gadol was like the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at that time. And by him having his stamp, his seal over a cask of oil, then you knew that that oil had not been contaminated by anything which the Torah would consider to be impure. So, so let's just reconstruct the picture for a second. By the time the Maccabees reclaimed the temple, Obviously, it had been uh, quite vandalized. But by the time they walked into the temple, there was oil available. And at, had they chosen to, they could have lit the menorah right then and then. They would have had enough oil to last them as long as they needed. But they insisted 
and sometimes you can call this the Dafka gene. They insist, you know, how his Jews can be a little bit stubborn at times, or maybe most times. And so they were stubborn about this as well, and they decided that they're not going to use any of that oil, even though it was freely available. But they were specifically going to look for the possibility, and it seemed a very remote possibility, that maybe there was one jug that the Greeks had not damaged. Now, you also have to ask yourself the question, for heaven's sake, if you're an invading army and you're about to conquer a place, surely there are more effective strategic steps that you could take than to smash open jugs of oil. I could understand if they wanted to pour the, wa- the oil out because then they would waste the resources of the force that, uh, of the country that they were invading. I could understand it, but they didn't do that. They didn't waste the oil. Isn't that fascinating? Again, it's a subtlety that people miss in the story, but they didn't do that. They did not throw out the oil. They didn't drain it down. They just simply broke the seals on the jugs that contained the oil. And you have to ask yourself, what on earth drove them to do that? Of all things, why that? And what drove the Maccabees to insist that they were not going to settle down until they found proper, pure oil? And by the way, (laughs) it's only because of that tenacity that they did find that oil. Because it must have been... I mean, just try and picture the scene. The place must have been a mess, an absolute mess. And it was very tempting, I'm sure, just to say, look, we've got oil. Let's just use it. Let's just use it. And maybe somebody has got an idea, a suggestion, why they were so uh, set on Dafka getting pure oil because there's oil available. All right, let's take a look at some of those WhatsApps that have come through. Neil says, when one lights a match, as small as it is, the darkness is no longer there. Yes, absolutely, 100%. I don't think that anybody would argue. But then again, is that a uniquely Hanukkah message? I mean, Jews light Shabbos candles every Friday evening. Jewish women light candles every single Friday evening. The tradition in a shul is that when it's time for prayer, you're supposed to light candles in the front of the shul. We have uh, candles for festivals. We have candles to mark the end of Shabbos. We are constantly lighting light and lighting matches and bringing light into the world. That doesn't yet tell us what's unique about Hanukkah. And that's what we're trying to explore over here today is what is unique about Hanukkah. And it's a holiday that we all do celebrate very often deep into the summer holidays. So perhaps for that reason, it's a little bit overlooked in terms of its depth here in South Africa or generally in the Southern Hemisphere. This is a great opportunity for us because Hanukkah is here early this year. So everybody's around and we can talk about it and we can unpack it. And maybe that's why this is a good thing to do. Here's a message from Rene who says, maybe we concentrate on the lighting of the candles because Hashem has told us to make a menorah to commemorate both the Maccabees and the oil. Well, how does the menorah commemorate? I mean, it does commemorate the Maccabees, I suppose. This is from Rene. It does commemorate the Maccabees in the sense that they were the ones who found the oil, but it certainly does not appear to commemorate the battle, the war. And that is a big deal, and, and we have a requirement in Jewish law that we have to be grateful for miracles that happen to us, including military miracles. In fact, many of Jewish history's military victories have been nothing short of miraculous. So we're quite used to making festivals and celebrations over the uh, miracles of war. So why is this one a little bit different? Yes, I agree, Rene, that it does commemorate the menorah, it does commemorate the Maccabees, but it does not commemorate them in their role as warriors or as the saviors of the Jewish people from this invading army. So let's try and explore this a little bit de- more deeply. I really think that a big clue is going to lie in the concept that here you've got this army, this powerful army, most powerful army in the world, comes into a place, attacks the place, 
destroys everything in sight, but doesn't waste the olive oil resources, just makes sure that they would not be halachically compliant. I mean, that already tells you that they knew what they were doing. That tells you that they weren't some kind of, I don't know, primitive people who ran in over there and just plundered whatever they saw. You have to remember the Greeks were highly philosophical people. We know that. Some of the greatest philosophies in history came from Greece. So we can understand then that they – they had a particular thought process that they were going to apply to this particular salt, and we've got to uncover it. We've got to try and understand what it is, and we've got to try and understand what it means, and we've got to try and understand what it teaches us. So let's dig in and try and find some pure oil of our own understanding of what Hanukkah is all about because you do hope that on an annual basis you enrich your appreciation for the particular holidays or the particular Torah portions or whatever it is that you're reading or studying or celebrating. So – no less so for Hanukkah. It definitely deserves, right? It deserves to have that kind of attention. So let's explore it and let's talk about it and let's see. I'd love to hear if you have a particular insight on why you think it is that, well, first of all, why is the celebration all around the oil? Second of all, why is the celebra- Why is it that the story centers so much on the oil and specifically on this so-called pure oil? Like what, what, what's that all about? I don't know. I think, uh, let's see, maybe we should pull up a Hanukkah song. Maybe that will stimulate some juices in people's imagination and people's brain. Something just to get us, you know, on, on track because there's, there's something lurking beneath the surface over here and I don't know if we have found it yet. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 high FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Okay, there you go. That was uh, a nice, real Hanukkah-flavored bit of music. So well done over there, Tabo. Thank you. And uh, we're talking over here about why it is that on Hanukkah we focus so much on the oil, the miracle of oil, rather than the miracle of military victory. And I did indicate that one of the one of the clues that we'll get is the fact that the invading Greek army decided they specifically wanted to contaminate the oil in the temple. So there's obviously this very interesting centrality of oil. And there are all kinds of symbolisms. By the way, if you explore this, and we're not going to do justice to it today, but if you do explore it, you'll see that there are so many different um, messages and images associated with oil, and particularly olive oil, throughout the whole of the Torah. So, you, you know, you could do this in a lot of detail. There really are many, many different things that associate with oil. But for a variety of reasons, in this particular case, it's not just about oil, it's about purity. So you could say this, you could say that Hanukkah is actually a, <clears throat> a celebration of purity, actually. I mean, that emerges in the story because we know that that's what they were fighting over. Here's, here's a group of people. They walk in. They've beaten the enemies. They've reclaimed their territory. They walk into the temple, and they won't touch any of the jugs of oil because they consider them no longer to be pure. So what does that mean? What is pure oil? Well, what's this all about? And I think we know from our own experience, I mean, you have what you call sterile environments. Uh, in a medical context, you have it in a crime scene. You know, certain things that became contaminated. I want people to go where they shouldn't go, touch what they shouldn't touch. You want to keep the integrity of certain spaces or certain things. And that's really what we're talking about. Here, is, is retaining the integrity. The entire Hanukkah story is it all pivots on the integrity, the purity the real essence of what it's all about. Because the battle 
actually, when you start to explore it, it was a battle for the purity of our experience of Jewish of Judaism. It was a battle of what it means to be a Jewish person, what it means to observe Judaism. So if you can kind of think of it in those terms, you start to get an insight into what's going on over here. A couple of messages coming through. We'll come to them in just a second. Meanwhile, you can message as well, 34519 by SMS. Otherwise, WhatsApp 0618951019. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. It's interesting. Neil says that oil is associated with anointing. When God wanted to anoint a person to a particular position, they would use oil. And he gives the example of the priests who were set apart using oil. And that's a very good observation because that tells you a lot about oil. That's, that's why I'm emphasizing over here, even though we call it the Festival of Lights. Don't know when that started, by the way. Not sure if anybody does. I get the sense it's a little bit of a modern Israel thing to call it Chag HaUrim, the Festival of Lights. I don't know how far back it goes. The real name of the festival, obviously, is Chanukah, which doesn't imply light either, by the way. Uh, even though we celebrate it with a menorah, it doesn't actually imply light specifically. And I'm trying to move away a little bit from the concept of making it just about light because I think light is fairly generic and it pops up all over the place. And that goes directly to Cynthia's uh, WhatsApp over here that says, that there could be many types of light, and even the negative angels were angels of light. And then Cynthia also says there are other religions that celebrate light as well, like the Hindu Diwali, which is also called the Festival of Lights. And by the way, it was not very long ago. It's all around about this time of the year. Hanukkah for me is instinctively more about a holistic miracle, winning a battle against all odds and the pure oil lasting. So that's interesting to say that it's holistic. And I'll tell you why it's interesting, because one of the properties of oil, and you'll know this from your own experience, is that oil has the nature. Somehow it just gets in every, everywhere. So if you've handled oil, if you, for example, have an olive oil menorah, which, by the way, is really the best way to do it. A member of our community walked into Shul this morning. He said this year he's had an olive oil menorah for the first time ever. And he says, it's in another league because he can't believe he's loving the experience, even though it's quite messy. And so as you set up that oil into the menorah, whatever, it gets onto your hands. We all know the experience. Oil just gets in everywhere. So holistic is a good word to associate with oil because that is very much part of what oil is, is actually all about, is this ability to kind of creep in everywhere and touch everything. Um, you think of it, I suppose, in a messy way, but the truth is it's symbolic also of, in a positive way. <clears throat> so oil, there you've got it. Oil is a symbol of holiness. Oil is a symbol of holistic involvement. Oil also rises, right? You put oil, mix it with a different liquid. It doesn't mix. It will rise above the other liquids. So there's a lot of symbolism. And as you explore further, you'll find that there's really a lot of symbolism in Judaism around oil. But for the, like I said, for the purposes of our particular conversation of here today, we're going to say that it's not just about oil. It's about the purity of oil. And, you know, you, you can get people, I suppose, who say you have to understand the circumstances. You have to understand right now we're in a situation where we just can't be picky. We can't worry about pure oil. There's an emergency situation. We have not had access to the temple for X amount of time. We finally regained access. There's a menorah to be lit. It's part of the service. This is what you do for God. And you just take whatever oil you can find. And I think that, that is very much what the Hanukkah story, in fact, some of the great Hasidic masters, this is exactly how they interpret the, Has the, the Hanukkah story, that it, this is a story about the fact that they could have easily rationalized the Maccabees or otherwise better known as the Hashmonai family. They could have rationalized to themselves and said, listen, you know, the, it's circumstantial. 
There are times when you can do things the way that you would like to, and there are times when you have to just do what you can. And that was one such time. They could have easily justified to themselves and said, listen, I'm sure that there is a legal framework within which we can use non-pure oil, contaminated oil, and we could still light the menorah. And by the way, they would have had a legal precedent for such a thing. I mean, it's brought in halachic works that if you don't have pure oil, you don't delay lighting the menorah. You just use whatever oil you can get. So you can understand where they were coming from. But they were they were most concerned. They were most concerned because what had happened around about that time was an assault on exactly that. This Greek invasion of Israel was not – it wasn't geopolitics in the classic sense. It wasn't some kind of a conqueror coming to take over the country. This was an ideological war. And the basis of that ideological war was all about what the Torah calls purity, the integrity of a belief system, the ability to say – that this is the way it is because it's the way it always has been because it comes from an eternal source directly from God and therefore it's never going to shift. A lot of what was going on over here was an argument to say, you need to move with the times. You need to move with the times. This is, uh, you know, new people, new experience, new world, new cultures, new dominant force in the world. And guys, catch a wake up. You, it's it's no longer what it used to be. I suppose what people would say today, you're no longer living in the shtetl. And that's what was going on. You had this very compelling ideology that was being brought eastward from the great philosophers of Greece. First into Egypt, Alexandria became a huge center of the Hellenist ideal to the north of Israel in Syria. And and that's where the that's really where the problems began. And you have to know if you know the history that there were many, many Jewish people who started to slip in their Judaism. It's fascinating because one of the things that we're taught is that when you see that there's a particular part of the faith, a particular part of the observance within the community that's eroding, then you have to take extreme action to illustrate that we can't afford to allow this to erode. And that's what was happening. It was this great erosion of the integrity of Judaism, the sense of, well, you know, the fact that it's all divine and therefore by naturally, if you accept that it's divine, then you don't necessarily understand how it all works. So it's a little bit beyond the human mind. But let's shelve all of that and let's rather create a rationalist version of the religion. You know, they, they, there's different philosophies and different societies. Everybody has their strength. Everybody has their value to add. Everybody has their greatness. And really all we got to do is identify what our greatness is and appreciate and value the greatness of other people. And that was very nice and beautiful and kind of coexistence and everything wonderful about it, except that it was it was shaving away, it was eroding away the integrity of Judaism because the integrity of Judaism is predicated on a very important, a very important principle, an absolutely fundamental core principle, and that is that we're Jewish and we follow Judaism because it's what God said. The minute you believe or imagine that it was something that a group of people at some point in time had nothing but better to do with their lives decided that they were going to invent a religion and we were now going to have to conform to it, well, that's it. Then you've lost it. Then you've lost the integrity right there because the minute you say that, the minute you think that uh, this is something which is of human origin, then everything is up for discussion. Everything is open to debate. And more importantly than that, because we're happy to have debate. Anybody who's familiar with the Talmud would know just, anybody who's been to a yeshiva will know just how much debate is very much built into the Jewish experience. We're not afraid of debate. However, once you believe that something is of human origin, you've naturally created it to be extremely limited. That means, number one, it's 
you know, under different circumstances may long, no longer apply. Number two, how should you expect something of human origin to have the capacity to put you into a different plane of existence, a different spiritual experience? I mean, it's just some guy's ideas after all. So fundamental to the integrity of Judaism is our absolute faith. It's one of the basic things that every Jewish person believes, and that is that the Torah comes from God. And therefore, there are certain parts of the Torah that are going to be beyond human experience. And that's intentional. It's not because he's trying to trick us or because he wants things to be what we can't understand, but rather because he wants to take us to places where the, our own human mind, and it's pretty developed, the human mind, but even the human mind can't take us to those places. Even the most brilliant human minds that ever lived will never take us to those places. And that's why you have certain things in Judaism that just are inexplicable. One of them being these laws of purity and impurity. They don't really have a rational basis, and that's what the Greeks couldn't handle. It drove them absolutely berserk that the Jews would go crazy over this fact that if a particular jug of oil has a seal on it, then it's fine and you can use it to light the candelabra in the temple. And if another one does not have the same seal on it, suddenly you can't use it. I mean, for heaven's sake, the ingredients are identical. It's not like somebody's added some kind of a poison into it. And they couldn't get it. And it drove them absolutely up the creek. So that's why their statement of protest against Judaism was to break those jugs of oil for two reasons. They wanted to get rid of the concept, the concept the Jews have that there's this pristine, pure version of Judaism, say, listen, it's all up for negotiation. And they wanted to say that to believe in a system that has absolutely no rational basis is unacceptable. And the Jews, funnily enough, couldn't handle that. And they acted in an irrational way and said, no, 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 no. We, we cannot accept that kind of an attack. The man who stops advertising to save money is the man who stops the clock to save time. To find out how Chai FM can work for your business, call us 010-140-4090. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 Chai FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So I guess the message of uh, Hanukkah, because everybody identifies that Hanukkah is, a, is associated with light for very obvious reasons. I mean, it's all celebrated by lighting a menorah. But more than that, it's about what fuels that light. You see, it is our responsibility to go and illuminate the world. And we do have an understanding that the world needs extra light, even if you want to say that it's not a dark and dreary and dingy world, which is a fantastic way to look at the world, by the way, to, to see that it's got light within it. Even if it has light within it, there's, there's no reason not to bring more light into the world. So that's very much our responsibility. But Hanukkah reminds us that if we're going to go take light to the world, we have to make sure of the integrity of that light. It can't just be something which is in vogue at the moment, and so that's what we're going to spread, or something which is a feel-good kind of concept, but it's not really borne out by fundamental principles of Judaism. If we're going to take light to the world, the miracle of Hanukkah is the miracle of keeping exactly the same kind of oil, in other words, the same kind of fuel, the same kind of message, the same kind of integrity, the same kind of purity of the Jewish experience today as it was a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago and 3,300 years ago when the Torah was given at Sinai. That's actually the challenge of Hanukkah. And that's why you don't think about it, but that's why Hanukkah is an enduring festival. You think it's an enduring festival because it's fun and it comes at the right time of the year when people are in a festive spirit anyway. So they just jump onto the bandwagon and say, well, everybody around us is celebrating, let's celebrate as well. Truth of the matter is that the reason Hanukkah is an enduring festival is because when you touch something that is pure, when you're engaged with truth with a capital T, 
not some watered down, diluted, compromised version, then that's the kind of thing that lasts. That's the kind of thing that relates to everybody. That's the kind of thing that a child can appreciate just as much as an adult can. And those are the things that Hanukkah celebrate. So we're halfway through the festival. Tonight we're going to light the fifth candle, which is very significant because that's when you look at your menorah and now you see that there's more light than there's dark. So that implies the turnaround and the overwhelming of darkness by light. It's a great time for us just to reflect and say, Core principles. How do I get back to core principles, core beliefs? How do I reconnect to that purity of the message that's kept the Jewish people alive under the worst odds throughout the course of our history? And how do I share some of that with the rest of the world? Just a quick uh, aside over here. Neil wants to know how come it is that the menorah that we use today has nine candles if ultimately – It's an eight-day festival, and the reason for that is because we put one extra light onto the menorah. It's called the shamash. That extra light is used to light the other eight. It's also used just to, if there should be load shedding, which we hope they won't, and you're in the dark, you're not supposed to use the Hanukkah candles for personal benefit, so you've got this extra candle that could help you in case of emergency. And so with that, I want to wish you a wonderful Shabbos and a joyous Hanukkah, and I hope you're getting away, and if you're not getting away at least, I hope you're getting to rest so you can use the summer well as a time to recharge, re-energize, and come back to 2019 feeling ready to make the world a far better place to shine a light and to transform all the negative into positive, I guess we'll pick up fresh thinking once people are back in a couple of weeks' time. Till then, may the light shine through all of us and make the world a brighter, better, and healthier, happier place.